people throw you into a sickbed. Repent, Sardis, or I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I come. Repent, Laodicea, or I'll, I'll reprove and discipline you. So five of the seven churches, he says, repent. So what is the basic idea of repentance in this command, beloved? I mean, we've heard repent means to be sorry over sin and to seek forgiveness, and that is true. Or that the word repent means to have a change of mind. That is also true. But this word repent often translates an Old Testament word that means to turn or to return. So repent doesn't merely have to do with feeling emotionally sorrow. That's mere penitence. But this involves a turning. This involves a a change of direction. And that's precisely what repentance is. To turn around. To turn around. Mere feelings or remorse, a a certain sorrow over sin because we fear punishment without resolve for for forsaking sin cannot be referred to or confused with repentance. Very important. Jesus is saying here, turn your lives around for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's an implied criticism in that statement, isn't there? They must turn from something. And the point is this, beloved. It is impossible to follow Christ without repentance. Yes, let me say that again. It is impossible to follow Christ without repentance. Some will say again, well, see, there you go with works again. No, wrong. Let me tell you why. Faith and repentance are themselves fruit of regeneration. When God regenerates a sinner, he creates a new nature within that sinner. And he commands the repentance, but also provides the ability to repent as they believe in Jesus Christ alone. The late, great James Boyce comments on this, and he says this, How could it be otherwise? Jesus is holy. The sinless Son of God. He has never taken one step in any sinful direction. He's never had a single sinful thought. Anyone who's following him, therefore, must by definition turn his back to sin and set his face towards righteousness. Anyone thinks that he or she can follow Christ without renouncing sin is at best badly confused, or at the worst, this person is not a true Christian. End quote. Now, do Christians sin? Well, we'll all say yes to that. Amen. Hello. <laughs> Yes, we do sin, but we as believers, we confess that sin, we turn from that sin, and we're restored again to fellowship with our sovereign Savior. Now, some Christians will say, hey, I experienced a deep level of conviction and repentance at conversion. Well, guess what? Not every Christian has. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, there are children who come to faith at a very young age. And they've never had a sense of turning from deep, dark sin as I did. But what we must remember, whether we're one who experienced a deep level of conviction and a deep level of repentance, turning from much darkness, and those who grow up in the faith who've never experienced perhaps something like that, nevertheless, we must remember that as believers, repentance is an ongoing, lifelong experience, beloved. Day in and day out. 
Because as Christians, as we read the Word of God, as we sit under the teaching of God, we, we most often grow more convicted and aware of His holiness and our failures. And as I said this morning in Sunday school, if you can feel convicted about your sin and it troubles you, that is not a sign of unbelief. Don't doubt your salvation in that sense. You should rejoice that you feel conviction that you've sinned against a holy God. It should drive you back to the cross where he paid the price. And you rest in him. John Kelvin said that our hearts are idol factories. And a Christian's life is a life of continual repentance. Martin Luther saw repentance beginning at the point of faith when he wrote, quote, Repentance is not penitence alone, meaning mere remorse or an attempt at moral reform, but also faith, which apprehends the promise of forgiveness, lest the penitent sinners perish, end quote. So Luther connected repentance with faith and saw it as a lifelong process just as Calvin did. Forgiven once and for all and forever, yes, in Christ. As we grow ever aware of his holiness and our desperate need for his grace. Now being exposed to the words of Jesus Christ plows deeply, do they not? I mean, we read the word of God, it digs into the core being of what we are and who we are, or who we're pretending to be. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here we stand before the word of God, realizing that it, it may very well involve great changes every time we read it or hear it. Changes that we may not even be aware of one week, but the next, it's right there before our very eyes as the Lord brings it to the surface and we rejoice. This, beloved, is his fundamental summons to all. This preacher preached repentance. The preacher of preachers. Next, as we move towards this great sermon, I want you to notice the preacher who assumes authority and allegiance. This is what the world must know, beloved. Before they know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, they must know the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. So all I'm trying to do for us this morning is remind us of this great preacher. Who is this preacher who assumes authority? He assumes allegiance. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus comes along, and he calls these fishermen to leave everything and to follow him. Now, I want something to be known here. These disciples, these fishermen, do not confuse them as being some you know, poor, desperate, ignorant fishermen who had nothing better to do but than to follow Jesus, okay? These were not poverty-stricken, blundering fishermen who had nothing better to do, trust me. As a matter of fact, Galilee was a very prosperous region, especially within the fishing business had a thriving fish, fishing business. Now, these men weren't overtly wealthy, but they were not either dirt poor. In Mark chapter 1, we read, immediately he called them, Jesus calls them to himself, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. Anyone who was able to hire servants wasn't doing too bad. So we mustn't presume that these were poverty-stricken men that made up the twelve. 
Many mistakenly do that. Also, they are mistaken to think that these were ignorant men. That they were just kind of blundering fools. And I think they reason within their minds because of what's written in Acts 4, chapter verse 13, chapter 4, 13, when they, the priests, remember, they saw the boldness of Peter. They saw the boldness of John. And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, what stunned the priests was not the mere ignorance of these men, but rather they were astonished that they hadn't received theological training under these rabbis because of the power of their ministry. They had been with the Lord. So he calls these men to himself. And in all actuality, those that were living in Galilee were probably very culturally adept. They no doubt spoke Hebrew, these men. They spoke Aramaic. And with the commercial interests of the day, they likely spoke Greek. And with the Roman influence of they, likely perhaps spoke a little bit of Latin. You know, I went to Africa here a few years ago, uh, weeks ago. And oftentimes people in the West presume that we're going to minister to a bunch of uneducated tribesmen from the jungle or something. But that is not the case. Uh, many of the men that I met in Africa spoke five, six, and seven languages. And they're very well educated. And we're there to simply minister to them the word of God so that they might have more effective ministries throughout Africa. So here Jesus is. He assumes authority and allegiance over the lives of these men. He calls them from their livelihood to follow them, to follow after him, rather. And they leave everything. Now, we must know that this was a unique call to the twelve. To leave everything like this and, and follow Jesus was unique to the twelve. So you don't have to feel guilty that you should turn in the keys to your business and move to some remote part of the earth in order to quote-unquote follow Jesus. Jesus had many other followers who were not called to leave their livelihoods. This was a unique call of the twelve because these men would go on to be the apostles with the message of the kingdom. But there is a common element to the call, beloved, for which we share. There is a certain level of leaving required in order to follow Christ. Amen. Jesus said, if you love father, mother, brother, sister more than me, you have no part of me. In other words, if anything in this world will keep you from showing allegiance to me, you shall have no part of me. He called them to himself. And what's interesting here is that in this day, what was common to Jews is when a disciple wanted to follow a certain rabbi, it was up to the pupil to seek out the rabbi to seek permission to follow him. Jesus turns it around. He calls the disciples to himself. He calls them to leave everything to follow him. When he called you, just in case you don't know, you didn't seek him. He sought you. And when he sought you, he called you. And when he called you, you recognized his voice, and you in turn what? You follow. And we continue to follow. So he assumes prerogative over the lives of his people. He controls our lives. He calls us 
to obey his word. So here then is the preacher who assumes authority and allegiance to himself. Notice next, the preacher who acts contrary to popular approval. Verse 23, Jesus is uh, making his circuit throughout Galilee. It says he teaches, he preaches the kingdom, and what? And he heals. Supernatural healings going on here. Now, first of all, it was typical in a synagogue to have the, the law read and then someone stand up, or stand up and read and then sit down and provide commentary on the law. You see, Jesus did this in Luke 4. And in the Sermon on the Mount, beloved, when we get there, what Jesus is providing for us is a detailed commentary on the law of God. It's meaning and it's fulfillment. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom. So in addition to teaching and and preaching, he heals everyone he touches. Now think about that. What do you think he was most famous for? You think it was teaching? No. You think it was preaching? No. You know what it was? You know why he was so popular? Because of his healing. The masses follow him. But the reason that Jesus was healing was for the Father's revealed confirmation of the Son's message. Very important, because there's so many concerns today about healing ministry in the church. And that was very common in Africa. They're concerned about, what what about the gift of healing? What about it? Some of these people think they have the gift to go in and just lay hands on people and they rise up from the dead and rise up from the hospital. See, these kind of miracles do not exist in and of themselves. These miracles serve as verification of the Father for the sake of the message of the Son. And what about the apostles? Same reason. To validate their ministry to validate their apostolic role. That's why they were referred to as signs of an apostle. That is not to say that God doesn't heal today, by the way. God does heal, and he will heal whom he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. But through the hands of men, we do not see this type of supernatural signs. These had a specific purpose, and the Son of God here, uh, his message was being validated by the Father from above. And notice, his fame then goes out throughout all the land. Multitudes are following him, beloved. This is unparalleled popularity. Anyone Jesus touched, he healed. Quite amazing. But unlike us, when we get a taste of fame, and we have a tendency to what? Move towards the front. We have a tendency to pose. We love 15 minutes of fame. If you watch the news long enough, there's always someone jockeying for position to get their 15 minutes of fame. As they make fools of themselves most often. Amen? But Jesus does just the opposite. His fame went out throughout the land. And what does he do? He withdraws. He pulls himself away from popularity. And he teaches. He teaches. He sits down and he teaches. Not a very wise marketing strategy. What do you call it? Strategy. Not a very wise marketing strategy in what 
people want in the church today. They want to market the church. They, they want to market methods and say, come. This is a pivotal moment of ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he pulls back from the crowds. This could have been caused to give the people what they want. What do they want? They wanted healing. But he puts it on the shelf, and he teaches. This is not because of a lack of compassion, beloved. They need to see the kind of Messiah he intends to be, not the kind that they interpret him to be. Very important. They need to know more than the results of the kingdom, but also the rule of the kingdom and the ruler of the kingdom. And this is what he's breaking down. So they need to know much more than the delights of the kingdom, but also the discipline of the kingdom. For it's his kingdom. So at this point, many people are being moved by this wave of enthusiasm. And Jesus withdraws. You know what waves of enthusiasm produce, beloved? False assurance. False assurance. Jesus goes up on a mountain, sits down, away from the accolades of men. His men come to him, and he teaches. Jesus doesn't need cheerleaders. He does not need cheerleaders. He does not need people on his bandwagon. You know what? He doesn't need you on his bandwagon. He doesn't need me on his bandwagon. He wants you in his school. He wants us sitting under his teaching to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. It's not about how excited we feel. It's to know of him. To hear his word, to understand his word, and in the end, to obey his word by the ability that he provides us to do so as kingdom people. So here then the teacher withdraws, he sits down, and his disciples came to him. That was the position of a teacher in the day. They would sit down when they taught. He opened his mouth and taught them. That's a Jewish idiom. He opens his mouth, he teaches. These are the first recorded words of our Lord Jesus Christ in a teaching type of setting. This is a didactic passage. This is a teaching passage. This is a message to the church, primarily to the disciples, primarily to you as a disciple, to me as a disciple. There are other crowds that are in earshot of this glorious message, but Jesus opens the message with a series of statements known as the Beatitudes. Right there in chapter 5. Blessed are those who, blessed are the, and so on. Beatitude is Latin for blessing. Very misused and misunderstood passage of Scripture that is kind of generalized by the masses today. You know, for instance, they'll take, uh, blessed are those who mourn. They, they take that in a general sense. Well, blessed are if you are mourning over your loss, for you shall be comforted. It has nothing to do with that kind of mourning, beloved, which we'll get to next week. Blessed should be really understood as those who are approved. Those who've been approved by God. Those who've been granted the divine approval of God. Again, this is a message to the church, beloved. These are distinctions that demonstrate the redeemed of Almighty God. This is the preacher of preachers. Declaring the truth of the kingdom, declaring what describes a kingdom people. We have eight beatitudes, and these eight beatitudes, just like the nine fruits of the Spirit, Spirit are to characterize 
children of God. Now, it's important that we understand that not one of these distinctives, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, not one of these distinctives is natural. Did you get that? Nothing or which we will read in the Beatitudes or in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is natural to us. None of this comes to us naturally. Every single one of these truths is the product of the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit in and through the lives of His people. You can't aspire to fulfill the Beatitudes. You can't aspire in your own strength to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. This does not come by way of human effort. This does not come by determination alone. These are signs of regeneration. This is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification that is wrought within the believer for the glory of God as He conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. So Jesus, the preacher of preachers, is not, now get this, He is not preaching salvation by works in the Sermon on the Mount. Do this and you shall be saved. Live like this and you'll enter the kingdom. But He's teaching, rather beloved, how those that are already reborn of the Spirit will behave. This characterizes or describes the people of Christ. Now, the first four Beatitudes, which we'll look at in uh, weeks to come, concern our relationship with God. The second four concern our relationship with one another. So this preacher now who preaches contrary to popular approval, notice as he withdraws and sits down, I want you to notice the first recorded teaching words out of his mouth. The preacher with a message of kingdom living. Notice what he says. Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is for those who have been brought to the place of desperation. Did you get that? These are the people that have been brought to the place of desperation. This is an ever needy people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These people know that there is nothing in themselves, nothing whatsoever that will commend them before God. Nothing that they have for which they can bring before the Holy Creator. So in light of God's righteousness, they have a clear sense of their own sinfulness, their utter failure. So whom does salvation come, beloved? To those who have been brought to a place of utter desperation. Nothing to add. Nothing to provide for themselves. This does not come to those who think they can solve their own spiritual problems. Those that think their good can outweigh their bad. They're not part of the kingdom. The kingdom is those, belongs to those who know that they have failed. To know that is it, it is an impossible endeavor to stand before this holy God. Theirs is the kingdom. So the promise of those who are poor in spirit is that they are blessed. They are approved. They are received by this king. Will the self-sufficient be there, beloved? No, they will not. Jesus provides a parable for us in Luke chapter 18. You're all very familiar with it. 
provides a perfect picture of the poor in spirit. Jesus, Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners or unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I thank you I'm not like him. I thank you I'm not like her. Praying in himself. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritually bankrupt, beloved. You have nothing to offer. This word poor, this comes from a word that means to crouch in a dark corner, to cover your face in shame, and to lift and hold your hand out as a beggar. Theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom's not made up of anyone who thinks that they can justify themselves. So the first beatitude, beloved, mark this down if you don't mark anything else down today. This first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, sets the stage and is the foundation for the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I think we see a little bit of something of this preacher who preaches this sermon. Among the covenant community of God, his redeemed church are only here because of spiritual poverty fully dependent upon the mercy of God in order to get in. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. You know you can't do it. You know that you're incapable of, 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 of upholding the perfect law of God. Like in Sunday school this morning, what did we study? Almighty holy God descending upon Sinai with smoke, fire, thundering, he descends on Mount Sinai and gives the law. What do we see here? The Son of God ascending to a mountain, sitting down and declaring the truth of God, the heart of the law, as the very fulfillment of the law. And then the one who enables you and I, by grace, to represent the king in his kingdom. This is the foundation. Blessed are those who are spiritually desperate. Blessed are those who know that there is nothing they can do to attain the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. There's nothing to claim with regard to self-justifying works. Now, it's also important to know, beloved, that being poor in spirit is not you making yourself poor in spirit in order to get there. What we must understand is that those that are in Christ are here. In other words, they've been brought here. They've been brought to the place of being poor in spirit. You can't go out and try to make yourself poor in spirit. God raises 
spiritual dependent and need from deep within the sinner and he brings it to the surface as he does his divine work within that sinner. Realizing that this is the very state and condition for which he was born. And he transforms the sinner. These are the poor in spirit. He draws this emptiness to the surface. And it's this emptiness, you see, that the world tries to fill with other things. Therapy, fads, success, wealth. They're always on to the next thing, are they not? You used to be like that. Unless you came to faith at Christ in a young age, I used to be like that, always trying to fulfill it with something or someone. But until he brings the sinner to this place and reveals their utter depravity and their desperate need, theirs will never be the kingdom. So all the glory goes to him, do you see? To understand the Sermon on the Mount, one must stand here, poor in spirit, desperately needy. Now, this type of poverty of spirit doesn't leave the sinner at conversion. This is the kind of desperation that we dwell in, that we live in day by day. We're gathered here really out of desperation. We are in need of the Holy Spirit ministering to us and through us. Amen? We long to be with God's people. We long to sit under the Word of God. We long, by grace, to worship God. And even when we don't feel like it, we know that we are desperately needy to feel like it. Amen? And we're driven back to the cross to receive mercy that our hearts might be made right. It's this kind of spirit that hungers and thirsts to be what he enables us to be. There's no room for spiritual pride here, beloved. There's no room for self-sufficiency or arrogance or malicious talkers. We are a desperate people in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom. And this is the spirit of God's people until the kingdom is fully realized. Never needy people. We need his mercy, amen. So the more we look to God, the more we look to his law, the more we look to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the more we realize our desperate need for him. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. So who is this preacher? This preacher? He is the gospel. This preacher is the gospel. This preacher is the one who came to fulfill the commands of this sermon, beloved. This is the one who himself would provide the blessings of the blessed. He enables you to be this. It's Jesus who actually places these covenantal blessings of God upon his people as divine, defined in the Beatitudes. It's all grace. Christ's kingdom in its new covenantal phase, beloved, is the reign of God's grace in Christ Jesus for a desperately needy people. So he opens his mouth, he teaches a sermon of commands. These are commands of the heart for which he changed and is constantly what? Changing in you. Making a change through you. This is what characterizes a people that are born again. And we're going to see in the coming weeks that without 
the work of the Holy Spirit within the believer, the heart obedience that Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount, this would be impossible. Divine grace, day by day by day, to be what he calls us to be. Amen? So this really is a working out of everything that he has worked into us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He worked the salvation in. We work it out by faith. So God's people, they're always called to repent and believe in order to be saved. Amen? But on the divine side, we know that it is all the work of sovereign God that does save. We must worship and obey in order to be sanctified. All the while we know it's the work of God alone, this work of sanctification for which we, Romans 1 or 5, stand. And we know that God's people must persevere to the end. But in the end, we know that what? It's He who preserves us to the end for glory. Such is the mystery of this glorious sermon. Here's the preacher who preached it. May we know the preacher so that we understand the preaching. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And you know what the, you know what the poor in spirit can say? This is what they can say. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. Amen? Nothing. He did it all. He's brought you to this place. So I ask you this. Have you personally been brought to the place of being poor in spirit? Do you know individually that there's nothing that you can bring to God to provide an avenue of His saving grace? Have you come to him empty-handed? Has your heart been brought to the place of realizing that you are poor in spirit, a desperately needy sinner for the mercy of God? I pray that he has. You must believe. You must trust. And when you do, you will see a repentant mind begin to function by his saving grace and the Spirit of God who indwells everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. So come to Christ today and you shall be saved.